So, Would you turn to Isaiah chapter, five, chapter 25? That's what's going to lead us into the sermon this morning. It's not our text, but I want you to start thinking about eating. Sorry, Jaden. Um, I want us to start thinking about eating, feasting, banqueting. And Isaiah tells us something mind-blowing. Isaiah chapter 25, I'll read verses 6 through 9 here. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. Did you catch that? The master is going to make out this great feast, but what is the master going to eat? This covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. What an incredible feast. God's people get to eat, and God eats death. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be, on that, it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And God, this morning as we come to your word, and Jesus, you're speaking to us a lot about dining and about the great banquet that one day you will host. Oh God, would your grace be poured out upon us, even as they say here, as the Isaiah says, I pray that this morning would be full of gladness and rejoicing in the salvation of our God. That's you. Thank you, Lord, that you're here among us today. Bind us together in the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I don't consider myself a foodie. David Daniels and I were talking about that a little bit yesterday at uh, work day. I don't consider myself a foodie, but I can look back to some of the greatest meals that I've had, and almost all of them were with my bride. Okay? Thinking back really quickly, our honeymoon, we had Brazilian food in Hanalei, Kauai. Pecan rolls at the wagon trail up in Door County, Wisconsin. Dinner in a small cafe behind the Sacre Coeur Basilica in Paris. And less than a month ago, on our 20th anniversary, June 1st, we were up in Milwaukee and we couldn't get reservations anywhere. And we walked into an Indian restaurant that had not opened yet. But they welcomed us in, they sat us down, and they fed us incredible food on their tab. They were feeding their wait staff, and we got to eat there at the same time. That was a good anniversary. What I want us to start thinking about as we're considering eating and banqueting is that there is a greater banquet to come. A banquet that will blow our minds, where God eats death and we get to dine with Christ. This banquet is coming in the kingdom of God. Isaiah 25 talks about it in our passage where you can turn this morning in Luke 14. There's an exclamation by one of the guests at a dinner where Jesus is. 
And he says, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Yes, indeed, blessed is everyone who will eat in the kingdom of God. And then at the end of our Bible, in Revelation 19, we find out that this great banquet is actually a wedding feast. It is the wedding feast of the Lamb and His bride. If you've come to Luke 14, we're going to be in verses 1 through 24 this morning. In this section, Jesus answers a critical question that no one asked. What is this critical question? Who will taste my banquet? And his answer is this. You might find it peculiar at first, but I think it's going to come around to you understanding it. His answer to who will taste my banquet is this. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What do we find here in Luke 14? Well, Jesus is having dinner for the third time in Luke at the home of a Pharisee. This is specifically a ruler of the Pharisees, one of the ruling religious groups in Israel. And so he goes and he has dinner. This, as I mentioned, is the third time in Luke chapter 7 he eats with some Pharisees. This Pharisee's name was Simon. And while he's there, the text tells us a sinful woman comes, and she comes and she anoints Jesus' feet, washes them with her hair. See, this sinful woman is actually more precisely described as a forgiven woman. And she comes and worships her Savior, her Redeemer, and anoints his feet. Luke 11, things get a little dicey. He eats with some Pharisees again, and that dinner party goes poorly. Jesus ends up pronouncing woe upon the guests at that dinner party, calling the Pharisees and the lawyers hypocrites, murderers, and legalists. To which they responded, let me just read that for you. They responded in this way. As Jesus went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Entrapment, that's what was going on here. They were looking for a way to trap Jesus. Here, though, in 14, chapter 14, it seems like this may not be an entirely antagonistic gathering. In verse 31 of chapter 13, it says, At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. If those Pharisees themselves had been wanting Jesus to die, surely they would have been fine with Herod doing the killing. I want us to read our Bibles well. And sometimes we look at groups as a monolith. We understand a certain group and we kind of put our pre-understandings on them and say, that is how I view all of them. Therefore, that is true of all of them all of the time in the Scriptures. That's not always the case. It's not always the case. And I think here perhaps even the host of this gathering may even be affirmed by Jesus as we walk through the text. You may remember that um, 
there were two Pharisees in the book of John who Jesus definitely gets close to, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. They took Jesus' body down from the cross and buried him. There were some Pharisees that the Holy Spirit was working in, humbling them and bringing them to a place of faith in Christ. Also, Jesus has not pronounced any woes here. You would kind of expect that from the way the last party went. There's no woe here. Yet, Jesus, as he often does, succeeds in making this dinner party uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. And to be real with you, I hope the Spirit of Christ makes us uncomfortable this morning. Here's the main idea that we should pull from this. Who will taste Christ's banquet? Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But see, here's the thing. We don't use those words very often. Maybe humility, but not often exalted. What does it mean for someone to exalt themselves? Let me make it a little bit simpler, maybe more in our words. Who will taste Christ's banquet? Everyone who promotes himself will be demoted. Everyone who demotes himself or herself will be promoted. Maybe that takes you back to grade school. Will I be promoted this year? Will I be demoted this year? Okay. Well, when I'm using these words, I want you to think in those ways, yes, but I want you to think about someone who's a self-promoter. We all, that, that, that rings a bell with us. Self-promotion. Express yourself. Be noticed. Make a name for yourself. Whereas a self-demoter, I don't know if we ever use that term, but we're going to use it this morning, a self-demoter would be someone who denies themselves. So let me get even more precise with the main idea this morning. I'll repeat it a few times throughout the sermon. Who will taste Christ's banquet? The self-demoter. Who will taste Christ's banquet? The self-demoter. As you know and I know, we are naturals at self-promotion. Our hearts crave self-glory. This is what we do. We are vain, glorious people. We want to establish ourselves. We want to be known. That can look a whole lot of different ways in everybody's life. You might really value the ladder you're climbing at work. Or you may really value the ladder you're climbing on Instagram. Or you may really value the ladder you're climbing at church. You may really value fill in the blank. This is why Jesus is so adamant here about intentional humility. Self-demotion. See, where my status is, there my heart will be also. Humility is against our nature, yet it is required for the kingdom. If that doesn't make you uncomfortable, I don't know what will. If we really realize how self-promoting we are, yet Jesus emphasizes requires self-demotion, that's tough. How does Jesus present this in these 24 verses? Well, he's got a parable, some instruction, and then another parable. And they're all pointing ahead to the great banquet. If you don't know what a parable was or is, 
Jesus told a lot of them. They were earthly stories that had kingdom meaning. Okay? So he spoke here to help us start to think about there. And he does that here. And he uses a part of life where everyone has felt both joy and pain, inclusion and rejection, awkwardness, invitations. Invitation etiquette. Come on, work with me here a little bit. It's summertime. You may have gotten some wedding invitations. One of my friends would probably say this. I'll let you guess who she is. There are two kinds of people in the world. The kind of person who gets an invitation and says right away, yes, I'm going, or the person who gets an invitation and says, how can I get out of this? She stood behind this pulpit just a few minutes ago. <laughs> All right? <laughs> we know how weird invitations can be. Maybe you're doing the inviting. You're like, who do I invite? How do I invite them? Should I invite them? And should I invite them because they don't like each other? I haven't seen them in forever. Just the process of inviting people is awkward. Not to mention when you receive it and you wonder, who else is going to be there? Where am I going to sit? Who am I going to talk to? Why did they invite me? We're not even like that. Invitation etiquette. And there's no better place to talk about this than at a dinner party, which is where Jesus was reclining. First parable. Let's go to chapter 14, verse 7. Now Jesus told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lower place. So Jesus is observing the social dynamic at this Pharisee's home, and how the guests that were coming were seeking to take places of honor. And so Jesus says, listen, when you go to a wedding, all right, hear the echo of this pointing to the great banquet, the wedding feast. When you go to a wedding, don't sit at the head table or really anywhere close to it. All right, now, most weddings that we go to these days, when there is a sit-down reception, what, it, what are you going to find either at the table or you have to go to another table and pick it up and then find your table number? Your seating place, right? Your assigned seat. That was obviously not happening here and not happening typically in Jewish banquet culture. You would arrive and you would say, hmm, where do I belong here? And Jesus is saying, when you arrive and you're wondering where do you belong, your heart is going to say, go towards the top. And Jesus is saying, always aim lower. In fact, don't just aim lower. Go to the lowest place. Go to the lowest place. Kingdom etiquette. There is no 
ladder, no honor ladder to climb in the kingdom. Self-promotion in the kingdom only leads to shame. Instead, be thankful for the invitation. Go to that lowest place asking, why was I even invited here? I'm wondering that, so I might as well just go sit in the lowest place and consider others better than yourself. See, positions of honor in the kingdom are not to be strived for, to be climbed after. Instead, the king himself invites self-demoters into places of honor. Who will taste Christ's banquet? The self-demoter. Let's finish off this parable here. Verse 10. But when you are invited, go and sit, here we go, in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored. In the presence of all who sit at the table with you, the situation totally changes. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Proverbs 25, 6 and 7, back in the Old Testament, wisely says this, do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Wisdom aims low. The kingdom ladder descends. We move on to the next parable. Actually, the instruction. Jesus said also, this is verse 12, to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends. Huh? Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. So Jesus here is speaking to the Pharisee, the ruler of the Pharisee that had invited him and everyone else. And Jesus gives him a lesson on kingdom etiquette, something that always goes over well when you're invited someplace, is to instruct the host. When you invite, beware of ulterior motives. Social status, networking, I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch mine. Financial repayment, you want to keep this even Stephen. If I invite him, then he's going to invite me, and there will ultimately be no loss for either of us. Because the thing is, when our hospitality turns in this way, it breeds social isolation. We preserve our own comfortable bubble. Who will taste Christ's banquet? The self-demoter. So instead... Let's go to verse 13. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just, the great banquet. 
Who will taste Christ's banquet, the self-demoter? So instead, risk your status by associating with the least of these. Lose your wealth for the sake of those in need. Allow your bubble to be burst. The interesting thing here is that I think this Pharisee may have been kingdom-minded himself. Jesus was invited after all. And here as as Jesus addresses him directly, he does not chide him as he instructs him. He doesn't correct him necessarily. And he may even be affirming him. Why do I think this? Because we haven't read yet the very first part of this dinner party. Go back to verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, They were watching him carefully. Remember? Entrapment. There were definitely some guys that were there for nefarious reasons. Behold, there was a man before Jesus who had dropsy. This would be, they think this was edema, where this man would have had um, large portions of fluid or liquid that would display themselves, basically cripple him in his body. So this man is before Jesus. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they remained silent. Then he took him, this man, and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Why could they not reply? They could not reply because to the Pharisees, to that religious party, they did allow their farm animals to be saved on the Sabbath day. So Jesus was saying, if you allow that, then how much more? If you remember earlier in Luke, Jesus heals someone else on a Sabbath, and they question him about that. Also, his disciples eat grain on a Sabbath because they were hungry. What does Jesus proclaim to the Pharisees at that point? I am the Lord of the Sabbath. If you're thinking about what does Sabbath mean, well, oftentimes we think in our heads, well, it's one day of the week where you're supposed to just kind of chill. The Sabbath was for much more than that. The Sabbath was for intentionally stepping away from our duties, from the work of life, to worship God. And not just to worship Him, but to trust Him that I can step away from my duties because it's not ultimately me that makes my work succeed, makes my crops grow, makes my um, cows give birth to calves, but it is God who gives all of that blessing. So I can step back and I can worship Him and I can trust Him, allowing Him to then renew and redeem and, inf- and refresh my soul. 
So when Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, he says, listen, I've come to the world to bring restoration, to bring refreshment, to bring true worship. And he does that throughout the Gospels by continually healing on the Sabbath because when you think about it, there was no better day to do it. Because healing expressed exactly what Jesus came to do. And so here, this man is healed on the Sabbath and those Pharisees that had come to entrap him have nothing to say. Jesus heals the man with dropsy, but he tells the ruler of the Pharisees, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Was that just a a throwaway line? I think he was talking, continuing to talk to him and promising him, if you continue to walk with me, if you continue to see me as the king of the kingdom, you will be repaid. Does that mean that at the kingdom of the just, there's somebody there repaying, reimbursing us? Reimbursing Christ's people? Of course not. The resurrection of the just is so far beyond our paltry understanding of finances and economics. The resurrection of the just is Jesus saying, come into my house, brothers, sisters, our dad is here. All of eternity is feasting and joy, forgiveness and laughter. That's the repayment. And so, I ask you this. Was this Pharisee doing what Jesus had just instructed? I think yes. This man with dropsy was there for some reason. I think that this Pharisee may have invited him. God's kingdom cares about justice. And his citizens humble themselves by using their resources to, to uplift others. Obviously, a few of these Pharisees were not. But Jesus obviously does. Let's picture this room. Where was Jesus sitting? If you say, I don't know, the text doesn't tell us, you would be correct. We don't know. However, what did Jesus just instruct them to do when they come to a banquet? Sit at the lowest place. Where would this man with dropsy most likely have been? Sitting by the lowest place. And so Jesus, walking into a place where there was a banquet, probably that was going to exalt him or at least listen to him as a rabbi who had something to share, which is what he's doing here, Jesus likely goes to the lowest place and identifies with the lowliest people. This man who was crippled, Jesus sees him and heals him. He uses his resources to uplift and heal this crippled man. Friends, this is the gospel. This is Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Listen, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, exalted, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but made himself nothing, the king of self-demotion, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, aimed at the lowest place, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the lowest place of shame. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Do we see this? That Jesus demoted himself for the sake of coming down to those who were broken, those who were sinful. Jesus, when he talks about the blind, the poor, the lame, and the crippled, it is about them, yes, but it is also about those that are in all of those things spiritually. Jesus came down to the depths of the depths so that he could exalt all of those who are in the depths. There is no humility beyond his, no self-demotion beyond his, but oh, there is no exaltation like his. There is no glory like his. And as we're about to see here, there is no invitation like his. We come to the third section, this parable here. Verse 15, when one of those who reclined at the table with Jesus heard these things, remember what Jesus had just said, you will be, re you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This pricks this guy's ears. He's reclining with Jesus. He hears these things. He said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat in the kingdom of God. He almost just, he couldn't hold back. But Jesus said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. This is an uncomfortable story Jesus is about to tell, meant to make the whole room squirm. In Jewish society, there would have been two invitations. The first invitation would kind of be to put feelers out there. I'm thinking of having a party. If I have a party, will you come? That happened a long time before because there had to be preparations made. The second invitation came the day of the party. You were told about this a long time ago. Today the banquet is ready. Come on in and let's eat. What we see here is that the initial invitation had been accepted. The host said, will anyone come? And people all around are saying, yeah, we'll be there. We'll be there. But you're going to see what happens with the second invitation. Verse 18. 
But they all alike began to make excuses on that day. This is the second invitation. The first said to him, I've bought a field, and I must go out and see it. As if you wouldn't go out and look at a field before you buy it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them as if you would not examine the oxen before you buy them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come, as if his wife would not be able to come with him, or as if this invitation had not been given far enough before when he also would have known he was married and he could have made arrangements. Please have me excused. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. We'll leave it right there for now. Kingdom etiquette. What audacity to say you're coming, and then when the feast is ready to say, ah, so I got this field, or I have these oxen, or I have this wife. The audacity to turn your back on what you had originally said yes to. Kingdom etiquette, your affirmation, our affirmation of the invitation does not mean that you will taste Christ's banquet. See, you sitting here means that you have heard the invitation. There will be a day when there will be a banquet. Simply affirming that there is an invitation does not mean that you will taste it. We must beware of the pride of spiritual presumption. Don't bank upon your religious family, your spirituality, your morality, your good deeds, your Bible knowledge, your degrees, the way people respect you at work, or even your seat here this morning. The Pharisee Nicodemus had these in spades, but he lacked the grace of God's initiating, humiliating rebirth. That's why Jesus says to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, in John 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is making a clear distinction. Grace must intervene and save. And so, what does that mean for us? Beware of excuses. Beware of excuses, because excuses are self-exaltation. Do you see here? I have bought a field. I have bought five yoke of oxen. I have married a wife. I, I, I. John calls this, in his first letter, the pride of life. This is seeing the stuff out there and just being cool with it. It's the basis for Satan's fall. He said, I will exalt myself and make myself like God. It was the rotten core of even Adam's fruitless choice. And it's the seductive, sometimes incredibly pleasant, everyday life for you and me. Just the routine. It's just what I do. And you may ask, why so evil? Why condemned as the pride of life? It's because we choose self over submitting to Christ. He, after all, 
is the king. And he has invited us to feast with him. So our hearts will choose the stuff of every day over the maker of every day. The question really is, when do you want your kingdom? You want it now, a DIY self-built shanty that's going to burn? Or do you want your kingdom later because you have your king now? And so here at the dinner party, the king, the master, the Lord of the Sabbath, offering true rest to these overworked, legalizing Pharisees, says, come and enjoy my rest. I'm inviting you to a banquet. Come and feast with me. He's sitting right in front of them. And he's turning this dinner party into a taste of the great banquet to come as some hearts turn to him and others say, no, I'm good. I've got something to do this afternoon. Returning to the parable, the master is angry. Verse 21, the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Last week, Bill, as he was preaching, he was in chapter 13. And in chapter 13, someone says in verse 23 to Jesus, Lord, will those who, who are saved be few? And Jesus said to him, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And Bill talked last week about Jesus not answering the question about numbers, but answering the question about timing. The time to respond is now. But that narrow door is a narrow door where you don't just bring all your stuff, you don't bring your pride of life accumulations, you come low. You come lowest. You come humble. Because you realize, I realize, we realize, there is nothing I can do that deserves this invitation. But Jesus does answer here that question. He says, my house will be filled. My house will be filled. Everyone who by the grace of God, his spirit is being poured out to hear the invitation and to accept the invitation, to say, I don't deserve this invitation, but I'm going to come to the king's house and feast with him. Everyone who God is doing that in will respond. They will accept the invitation. They will endure from the first invitation to the second. But who's he going to fill it with? The uninvitables. Key question. Do you consider yourself an uninvitable? 
Or does your fashion sense or your education, your savings account, make you feel pretty content, pretty self-assured. If there is any shred of self-assurance in your heart that says, sure, I should be invited. I'm a good enough person, and I can live my life the way that I want. My life is about self-expression, self-exaltation, even if you don't, would, would not dare to say those kinds of things, but you know that in your heart, that's the conversation that you have with yourself. You will not be at the banquet. Who will taste Christ's banquet? The self-demoter. So I plead with you, I compel you this morning. Christ is compelling us, the servant king, out on the highways, looking in the hedges, compelling people, come in and eat with me. And he says, if you feel that self-assurance, repent of it. Turn away from it. There is nothing in you that deserves this invitation. Repent of your spiritual poverty. Cry out because you are crippled by sin. Confess that you are blinded in your self-dependence and full of lame excuses when the king calls. See, Christ is the king of self-demotion. You cannot go any lower than the depths of your sin that he already knows. So if you feel like there's a place of shame where if he knew he would pull back that invitation real quick. He knows. He knows. That is exactly why he went to the lowest place. So there would be no lowest place, no crevice of your heart, no hidden piece of your record where one day you might think, now he's got me. He already knows the depths of hell that he already conquered. Yet today, he is exalted at the right hand of the Father and still continues to issue his invitation, come and eat with me. The invitation etiquette, my friends, is this. Say yes. Say yes. Yes, I'm coming. I have nothing to offer. I don't even know why I'm invited. Look at me. But if you, the king, would invite me, I'm coming. Take me in all my mess, all my raggedness, all my crippledness, all my spiritual poverty, everything that I am. Take me, please. I will come. That's belief. That's entrusting yourself to a gracious and merciful king.
but it doesn't come without self-demotion. The ache that you're feeling, the guilt that you might be wrestling with, don't just try to medicate it or try to achieve over it or try to climb out of it. Instead, simply admit it. Simply admit it. And trust that he will heal you. There is a fountain full of blood and it comes from Emmanuel's veins. And all who come beneath that flood will lose all of their guilty stains. He says, come and eat. Eat of my body, drink of my blood. You need me in you. You need to be made new and only I can do that. To finish, I just want to direct you in this way. You may think, how in the world can I self-demote adequately? You can't. You can't. <laughs> you cannot. I cannot. We are prideful people. However, when we are brought into fellowship, with Christ, we are united with him. And his humility, his self-demotion becomes so inextricably intertwined with us because we are united with him that the beauty of life for you when you are Christ's will be found in humility. Humility is a byproduct of the gospel. If God has graciously given you a new heart, enabled to repent, humbled, exalted, you will see a growing humility in you, intentional, generous service for the sake of others and the glory of God. You will judge life more and more through the lens of less of me and more of Christ. Not perfectly, but your flesh's desires for self-promotion will seem increasingly hollow in comparison to the loving promotion of your king. See, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. So if you want to grow in humility, your mind and your heart have to be filled with some other focus, some other person, allow Christ to be exalted in your life. A growing kingdom-mindedness that considers your job promotions, your resources, your field, your oxen, your marriage, all the stuff of life, purely as gifts from the king to offer back to him rather than excuses to skip out on him. If you are Christ's, you will have a growing dissatisfaction with the status and the labels and the flags of this world with which the categories of pr the pride of life are encouraged. And instead, you'll have a growing dissatisfaction of those and a growing satisfaction in serving others.
because you can say, I am Christ's. So that's personal application. Why am I a guest? Because of God's grace in Christ, this humility begins to work its way through you. How about for the church? Why are we guests of the king? Because we are the bride. We are the bride. There is a day coming when the lamb will dine with his bride, his dirty people given fine linen, bright to wear before him. What a memorable, eternal banquet that will be, us with our husband. We will live for it together. We do live for it together. In the meantime, we love each other as Christ has loved us. So we refuse and we repent of jostling for power or position on the kingdom ladder. We serve as Christ has served us. And we rejoice if he honors us by inviting us forward. There was a little bit of a to-do at the uh, Southern Baptist annual meeting and not the to-do that maybe some of you are thinking about right now. More, well, I won't say more, but something else, a comparison between one pastor who basically spoke for a short amount of time and basically just gave stats on all that his church was doing. And the very next morning, another pastor stood up. His name's Juan Sanchez. He's from High Point Church in Austin, Texas. And he says this. Sorry, I've got to go back to my other page. He said this. Our ministries will be tested through the fire. So church, we will be tested through the fire. Speaking to pastors, he said, you will stand before the Lord. I will stand before the Lord and we will give an account. On that day when our ministry is tested by fire, the only thing that will remain is that which has been built on the foundation of Jesus Christ with eternal materials. And everything else will be, count, will be consumed by the Lord's fire. The man who was reporting on this said, in an effort to liberate pastors from bondage to outward signs of ministerial success, a.k.a. those stats, Sanchez extolled the virtues of ordinary faithfulness and of a ministry that is marked by a steadfast commitment to the word of God and an ardent love for the flock. Such ministries may not garner the attention and praise of man, but Sanchez assured his audience that they will be pleasing to God, saying, you don't need to be known outside your town. You don't need to write a book. You don't need to be on a conference platform. If you are faithfully preaching the word, the Father knows who you are, and the Father is pleased. So trust the Lord and preach the word. And brothers and sisters, I just have to say, I'm thankful to be a pastor of that kind of church. Where I don't have to come to a text like this and say, listen, people, humble yourselves. You're a prideful bunch. Of course we're a prideful bunch. We're people. But God in his grace, through the work of his spirit and the proclamation of his gospel to our hearts every day has made us a humble people. A people that desire to exalt Jesus Christ. And so I would encourage you as Paul encouraged the Thessalonians, do so even more. Do so even more. If you have the resources, brothers and sisters, to invite others into your home 
Who are you going to invite? Love those who are not like you by inviting them. Make a list. Prioritize your family here at EBC. Especially if you don't know somebody, invite them. And then go from there. One last point. We talked about personal, the church, and how about the world? Who are the guests that we are to invite? Interestingly enough, at the very end of God's word, the last part of Revelation, there is an invitation. That invitation says, come, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It's an invitation to come and drink at the banquet. Who gives this invitation? The Holy Spirit and the bride. The Holy Spirit that fills the church of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have an opportunity that God has given us to continue to corporately and individually express the gospel. This is also a self-demoting thing. How can I compel, perhaps even beg, definitely pray, for those who do not yet know that there is an invitation to the banquet. It is humbling to put ourselves out there for the sake of the kingdom that calls out to people every day, come in and feast. Yet our world is so full of the pride of life. Who will taste Christ's banquet? The self-demoter. Good news? The Lamb of God is the ultimate self-demoter. And he marries a bride. We humble ourselves before him and we are exalted with him. His humility is inextricably woven into our new hearts through our union with him and his spirit who is alive in us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know the excuses of our hearts. You know the excuses of my heart. God, I pray that you would continue to call us. We thank you that you are. That you would be exalted in our lives, Jesus, exalted in our church. And that there would be more and more people out on the highways, in the hedges, flying their own flags that come here under the banner of Christ and his salvation. In your name we pray. Amen.